Winning the spiritual battle. And uh, today it's going to be uh, God is light and truth. And this is part three. I'm going to go one more week on this after this Sunday. And I'll talk a little bit about that um, Okay, opening up God's Word. John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you that God is light. In Him there is no darkness at all. And then in John chapter 8, starting at verse 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Then skipping down to verse 31, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. John chapter 14, verse 6, uh, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then in Jesus' high priestly prayer, in John chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify, he was praying to his Father and asked his Father to sanctify them, that is, his disciples, and to us also, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And finally, what we're going to be talking about today, John chapter 1, verse 4. This is in the prologue, John's prologue to his uh, uh, gospel. In verse 4 of uh, John chapter 1, it says that in him, that is Jesus... The Word was life, and the life was the light of men. Father, as we come before you and we uh, uh, continue on in this mini-series, Lord, about uh, you being uh, the light and the truth, Lord God, I pray, Lord, that you would penetrate our hearts. Lord, let the light of your Word penetrate our hearts, Lord, and make us better men and women of God. And, uh, Lord, we know that these three, these four things are interconnected. Light, truth, your word, and as we're going to be seeing today, life also, Lord God. And uh, you bring life to us, Lord. So, Lord, uh, quicken us now, Lord, uh, through your word. And uh, may your spirit speak to us through what he would uh, say through me. Uh, to this church. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, as you all know, recently we've been looking at praise as a weapon to defeat the enemies in our life, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the theme verse for this series has been, let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. You know, the, the word in uh, Psalm 22, verse uh, 3, says that God is enthroned through our praises. 
He is enabled to sit upon the throne of our hearts. And when he is in, on the throne of our hearts, then he be, can begin to work in us and through us to defeat these enemies that we have. We focused on what I term adoration. And that's where we praise God for what he is, who and what he is. And to do this, I've been going through the attributes of God. God is love. God is holy. God is just. God is faithful, and God is true. He's always truthful. It's called his veracity or truthfulness. God is eternal. Hallelujah. He's always been here, and he will always be here. He will always be there for you because he's eternal. And he's created us to be eternal beings too. It's true that we had a beginning once. The day that we were born, or should I say really the day that we were conceived, because I believe that human life begins at conception. How many believe that? As soon as you were conceived, you were made in the image of God. And that was when your existence, at least your physical existence. Now God, you know, I was discussing this with Lane the other day. You know, God knows us beforehand. In his foreknowledge, because he is truly eternal, he knew us even before we were born. It says that in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. And I don't believe that Jeremiah was any better than any of us. He knew us before we were born. And uh, he has his own plan for each of us. And it's up to us to discover what that plan is. Uh, so far, I've looked at, uh, actually, this is the fifth attribute. Uh, we've seen that God is love, God is holy, God is just, and finally we looked at God is faithful. And uh, the last few messages, we've been looking at God is light and truth. So that's the fifth attribute, God is light and truth. And I combined those two because the two of them are related. Now, light as opposed to darkness, light versus darkness, was a favorite theme not only in John's epistle, but also in his gospel too. The scriptures that I've looked at so far is John chapter uh, 1, verse 5, going through the end of the chapter, and then covering the first two verses of chapter 2. And I've mentioned the fact that this is a light as opposed to darkness, a study in contrast. And John alternates between light and dark and light and dark with those uh, uh, seven verses, actually eight verses. And the key verse in that is the beginning there. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. In the Gospel of John, you've got a lengthy description of light as opposed to darkness in his prologue, which is the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. And the key verse on this is verse 5, where it says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. So, I've mentioned that that's an illustration you know, 
The devil is always going to be weaker than God. The devil represents darkness, and God and the Lord Jesus Christ represent light. What happens if you want to get it, uh, 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 put light in the dark room? You flip the light switch, and what happens? The darkness goes away. And I, I, as I said before, in a confrontation between light and darkness, light wins out 100% of the time. Also in John's Gospel, after Jesus' statement about being born again in John chapter 3, and following John 3.16, which everybody knows, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Then he, John goes into this contrast between light and darkness too. And it continues until verse 21. And the key verse on that is the second part of verse 19 of John chapter 3. It says that men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Unregenerate man naturally gravitates toward darkness. And even those of us that are born again, those of us that are saved, our natural inclination, our natural tendency is to do the same, to gravitate more towards the darkness rather than the the light. We receive Jesus in our hearts. His light shines in us. But that's we. even though we alter our destiny, we're no longer going to perish with the rest of fallen mankind we still have that tendency, that human tendency, to gravitate more towards the darkness. You know, and that's why it's a daily battle. How many of you know it's a daily battle? Every day we have to choose to come to the light and not shun the light and uh, live in the darkness of our sin. We need to choose to follow the Lord. And Jesus said that. He said, if any man come after me, Let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily. You know, that's in Luke's gospel, Luke uh, 9.23. You know, it's recorded in, uh, I know at least in Matthew 2. But only in Luke does he mention the fact daily. It's a daily thing that you have to do. You have to pick up that cross daily. And only when you pick up that cross to... You choose to come to the light, that's when you can truly follow Jesus. So it's not only daily, I've mentioned it before, you know, when I've preached on this particular uh, scripture. It's not only daily, it's hourly, it's minutely, it's every second of every day. You make that choice whether you're going to follow the light or dwell in darkness. Now we've seen that Jesus is the light of the world in John chapter 8. Jesus, uh, verse 12, Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Okay, right there it mentions life. Now, this was the beginning of uh, Jesus' I am the light of the world sermon that he preached. 
in John chapter 8, which was actually more of a dialogue in, uh, between him and the, dis the believing Jews. Really, it was kind of a discussion, and you could call it essentially an argument because they started uh, uh, going back and forth. But the heart of that uh, uh, passage in John chapter 8 is verse 32. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. So, once again, we see the relation between light and truth. Light is symbolic of truth. And I mentioned before, the word know there is experiential knowledge. It's not just high head knowledge. Uh, you know, it's something that you experience. You shall experience the truth. You shall experience the light and the truth will make you free. And since Jesus is uh, the truth, as we know from John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This talks of knowing him in a personal relationship. How many have a personal relationship with the living God? Okay, that means you walk with him daily. You pick up that cross, you choose to follow the light. And by the way, um, I'm not finished with this light of the world uh, sermon. In fact, we're going to cover it in more detail next week when I conclude this mini-series on God is Light and Truth. And I'll get into the practical. The practical is not just that Jesus is light and truth and that he is the word and that he gives us life. But the practical is that we need to be people of truth also. We need to be honest and truthful with all our dealings with other people. Your word should be your bond. You should always strive to tell what is true. And in the Greek, that word for truth meant that which is real. You give them the real story. Amen? And you deal truthfully with everyone that's around. You don't lie. We're going to see next week that the father of lies is who? Who knows who the father of lies is? Satan. Exactly. So if you tell lies, you know what you're doing? You're at least temporarily yielding control of your tongue over to the devil. Okay? We're going to get into that a lot more uh, uh, next week. Hallelujah. Last week I went into the third link of this chain. Jesus is the light of the world. We know that. John eight twelve. Jesus is the truth. We looked at that too. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And then last week we looked at how the word comes into play with the truth of God. Jesus was praying to his Father, and he asked the Father to sanctify them. Sanctify means what? It means set apart them apart. Set them apart by your truth. The thing that sets us apart from us, from the world, is the fact that we believe God's truth. And then where do you find that? It's in the Word of God. He said, your word, Father, your word is truth. 
So we see the third link is the Word of God. Now there are three kinds of Word, as I mentioned last week in Scripture. You've got the living Word. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, in the, we have it backwards in English. In the Greek it reads literally, God was the Word. Hallelujah. And then also, that word was Jesus. How do we know that it was Jesus? He, John was talking about Jesus. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as old, uh, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus gave us the true story. So God, that is Jesus, is the Word. Jesus is not only God the Son, but He became a man and dwelt among us and lived among us. This forms the basis of the doctrine of what's called the Incarnation. That is God becoming human flesh. You know, Jesus was the only person that ever lived who had a dual nature. He wasn't just God. He wasn't just man. He was God, the God-man. He was truly God and truly man in human flesh. This is probably the clearest passage of the incarnation here. God was the Word and the Word became flesh a man. Now, why is Jesus called the Word? The Word we talked about that a little last week. Uh, to John's initial audience, the people that he was writing to, the Greco-Roman world of the first century, uh, they would have understood this maybe a little bit better than we did. Uh, do you know the, it's a the logos? The word there is actually a, a Greek philosophical uh, word, which I didn't go into detail, and I didn't want to do it today because it would bore us to death. But the practical is this, that Jesus is God's word to us. His teachings alone are the highest moral and ethical treatises uh, known to man, and they reach their climax there in the Sermon on the Mount. John chapter, I'm sorry, not John, Matthew chapter, uh, chapters 5 through 7. And Jesus not only gave us his teachings, but he also demonstrated to man who and what God is. Who and what God is like. And the demonstration of what God is really like reached its highest expression in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5 verse 8 that God demonstrates his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13, Greater love has no man than this, than a man do what? Lay down, Lay down his life for his friends. He laid down his life and he paid the penalty of our sins right there on the cross. Now there are two other kinds of word. There is a spoken word. 
And this can be evangelistic in nature, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 10, where he tells them the word of faith which we preach. The word of faith is the gospel, the good news. That if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised from uh, uh, raised Him from the dead, you shall what what shall happen? You shall be saved. And also the uh, teaching or preaching, as Paul uh, told Timothy in Second Timothy chapter four verses two and three, Jesus told Timothy. Preach the word, be diligent, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, with all long-suffering and doctrine and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Why is it that, you know, these... uh, Radio and TV preachers that preach the health and wealth gospel, you know, and they're so so successful because they're telling people what they want to hear. I'm not here to tell you what you want to hear. I'm here to give you the truth. Amen? And sometimes the truth hurts. Everybody's heard that expression. You know, the truth hurts. And you have to be open to the truth and let it convict you. So that you will change your ways if they're not right with God. Amen? Okay, so, you know, and it's not only true of these health and wealth gospel preachers, but there's all kinds of gospels that just tickle people's ears. They hear just what they want to hear. You know, we may not want to hear that we're sinners. And we may not want to hear that there's sin in our lives, if there is. But you have to be open to it and to uh, be prepared for the Lord or maybe some of your, uh, one of your brothers and sisters to rebuke you. And that way, if you receive it, you'll change your ways. Now, the written word, I talked about uh, the written word too. And I mentioned that the devil has always tried to suppress the written word throughout mankind's history. Way back many hundreds of years ago, it was just written on scrolls of papyrus. Papyrus were just, uh, uh, you know, a makeshift paper made out of reeds. Or they later on, uh, I believe it was in the uh, second century BC, they started using parchment. You know, what's parchment? Parchment is uh, the hide of animal, you know, animal skins. They scrape off the hair and then use the animal skins. And these were painstakingly uh, copied way back hundreds of years ago. You know, from one copy to the other, they had to make sure that they got everything right. And sometimes they missed a few things. And, you know... There's a whole discipline, though. You know, we don't have the autograph. What, what they call them, the autographs. You know what the autographs are? The autographs were the original uh, uh, copies that were written by Paul and by John and the other apostles. 
you know, the uh, Gospels. Those were the autographs. And so, like I said, sometimes the errors would creep in. And there's a whole discipline called textual criticism. And I won't go into detail about that. But basically, it was, the goal of textual criticism is to recapture the original text as it was written. And uh, <clears throat> conservative scholars... You know, they did this by, you know, comparing different manuscripts. I mean, there are absolutely, uh, uh, there's 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the original, uh, 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 you know, of the Greek text there. And so they go through these thousands of manuscripts and they compare them and they try to weed out the variant readings, you know, to determine what was probably the original text. And uh, they have a uh, text now that they believe is 99.5% pure. So one half of 1% is still in doubt. But you know, you take that one half of 1% and you know what the Bible still says? It still says that Jesus was God who became man. It still says that he lived a sinless life. It still says that he died on the cross for our sins. It still says that he was raised from the dead and that he's still coming again. And that's what the gospel is all about. The gospel, even if there's one half of 1% that we still don't know about, at least we know that the gospel is intact. Okay, so... This only changed in the middle of the 15th century when Johannes, I believe it was Johannes, and I know his last name is Gutenberg, he invented the printing press. That was midway through the 15th century. And that was, you know, brothers and sisters, that was only 600 years ago. That's a drop in the bucket of human history. So we are indeed pri privileged to have the printed word of God. And printed words of, of other things, too. It's only, you know, it was less than 100 years later that Martin Luther, you know, started the Protestant Reformation. And because they had the printing press, they could not only print the Word of God, they could print also his uh, tracts and everything. And it was handed out to people. And that's how the Protestant Reformation was able to spread. Now, a second barrier preventing people from Bible access is it was also not written in the language of the common people. Instead, it was written in the original languages, Hebrew, uh, Aramaic actually also. Uh, Daniel was written in Aramaic. Aramaic was the common language that was spoken in uh, uh, the Holy Land of that day. That's what Jesus grew up speaking uh, it was also written in Greek. It wasn't just any kind of Greek. You know what kind of Greek it was? It was Koine Greek, what they call Koine Greek. And they, they at first really didn't know what Koine Greek was. And it turned out that it was the language of the common people. That is, it was universally spoke throughout the Greco-Roman world. And it was, it was just, again, that was part of the uh, reasons why God chose that particular time for Jesus to be born. It was the common language because of Alexander the Great. But it was written in that language, and of course, you know, over time...
people lost this Koine Greek. And so you've got those languages, you've got Hebrew, you've got Aramaic, you've got Koine Greek, and then later the, uh, it was translated into Latin. And then a, a thousand years or so later, nobody spoke those languages anymore. And it was only the priests that could read the Bible. And uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, in fact, this happened right up until Vatican II, is the, uh, <clears throat> the priest would get up and he would read the Word of God in Latin. And nobody would understand it. And then he would tell them what that uh, word, uh, you know, that he just read what it meant. And he would always refer to the official church interpretation. So the people, the common people, were at the mercy of the priest. You know, and if the priest was steering them wrong, then they would be steered wrong. There's no way that they could go back and understand it. It was only through the reformers, such as uh, uh, John Wycliffe, uh, Huss, uh, William Tyndale, and later Martin Luther, that people sat down and translated it from the original language into the language of the common people. And uh, then it was printed in that language. But people still needed to learn how to, uh, to read, and people back then were largely illiterate. Now, today we have, you know, the Bible in our language. And that was one of the points I was trying to bring up uh, last week, is how many of you are reading it and uh, understanding it. Today the written word of God is again suppressed. You know, we are so fortunate when we live here in the United States of America. Because in much of the world right now, most notably in communist and uh, uh, Muslim lands, the word of God is suppressed. You know, you can get thrown into prison for possessing the Bible. At the very least, I'll take it from you. You could be uh, thrown in prison and sometimes they will even kill you if you have a Bible in your possession. And so I ended up last Sunday by asking you that question. How seriously do you take the written word of God in your life? Do you read it daily? Do you memorize it? Or does it just gather dust on your uh, bookshelf? You know, so many people, brothers and sisters, in these nations where the word of God is suppressed, they don't have a Bible. And I tell you the truth, that many of them literally cry themselves to, to uh, sleep at night, having that yearning for the Word of God. And here we sit around and we waste it by not reading it, if we've got it. I mentioned, do you memorize it? You know, these people that got thrown into prison... For possessing the word of God, you know what they do? Is they find their comfort by quoting the word of God, the, the words that they have memorized. And that's what really brings them comfort. And the promises that God gave them in his word. Okay, so tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, sorry. <laughs> Not tomorrow, today, 
Okay, I'm going to go through the fourth and final link of the chain. You know, when I prepared the message last week, it occurred to me, you know, I was going to talk about the third link, which is the Word of God, but there's a fourth link in, in, in there too. You know what it is? The fourth link there is life. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. He that believes in me, you know, is going to have the light of life in him. So that link, that final link is the life of God and it is freely offered to man. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? <clears throat> Jesus said to him, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. So you can see right there how they are linked. You know, the link between light and life. Also, as I mentioned in uh, Jesus, uh, in uh, John's prologue, uh, in John 1, 1 uh, uh, through verse 18, right in there, it says, verse 4, in him, that is Jesus, the word was life, and the life was the light of man. You know, many years ago, uh, one of the uh, sermons that I uh, first preached was entitled, The Voice of the Serpent and the Voice of God. And I keyed off of uh, uh, the temptation of uh, uh, Adam and Eve by the serpent. The serpent, of course, is representative of Satan. And the main point that I was trying to bring out is the voice of God brings forth life. Whereas the voice of the serpent, who is Satan, brings forth death. And that was probably my major point there. And the conclusion that I gave is you ought to listen to the voice of God rather than to the voice of the serpent. And the voice of the serpent speaks everywhere. That's the voice of the world. Satan speaks to us through the voice of the world. He speaks to us through the voice of our flesh. That's how we get tempted. Another scripture that I shared in that sermon was, you know, the words of life and the words of death. How many of you know that we can speak words of death to people? But we ought to speak words of life. The words of God bring life. The words of Satan bring forth death. And, I, and you get that from a, a, a passage in Proverbs where it talks about life and death is in the power of the tongue. So we ought to be speaking words of life, amen? Not words of death. Now one of the things about uh, when the devil speaks to you, or should I say when the Lord the Lord will chide us and rebuke us, bring about a conviction of sin. But the thing about the voice of God is it always uplifts you. It still says to you, I still love you in spite of what you did that was wrong. And it will give you this positive outlook. You know, <clears throat> he will let you know that he still loves you and he will encourage you to do better in your life. Whereas, you know, if the you do something wrong, 
The devil's going to come by and uh, start rebuking you too, but he's always going to be harsh and condemning. And it'll make you depressed. So you know if God's, uh, uh, you know, rebuking you, you know, and chiding you because it's going to lift you up and encourage you. And you'll know that he still loves you. But if it's harsh and condemning, that comes from the devil. That's one way that you can distinguish between the, the two voices. Now, life and death according to the Bible. Some think that death is annihilation. You know, for example, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe. They believe when you're dead, you know, it's like, a, you know, back in Star Trek, you remember you used to hit them with a phaser, you know, and then they vanish away. You know, that for the Jehovah's Witnesses is what they believe death is all about. But the biblical definition is that life is union. There's two kinds of uh, life. There's physical life and physical uh, uh, death. You know, in physical life, you're... Uh, physical body is united with the immaterial part of your being. That is your soul and your spirit. I'm a, uh, uh, <clears throat> tri what they call trichotomist. That I believe that man is three parts. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses have a problem with the uh, Trinity. You know, how can God be three persons? Well, the thing, simple thing is you are a Trinity too. Paul wrote, uh, the very, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body <clears throat> be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you're a trinity. You know, uh, Kenneth Hagin, you know, I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but I like what he says about uh, the nature of man. He said, you are a spirit... You have an immortal soul, and you live in a spiritual. You live in a physical body. Okay, so there's your triunion right there. You are a trinity. You are spirit, soul, and body. So in spiritual life, your whole being is united with God, spirit, soul, and body. Death, on the other hand, is separation. So life is union and death is separation. Everybody say that. Life is union and death is separation. When your physical life ends, the immaterial part of you, the, your spirit and soul, uh, uh, separate from your material body. Now, spiritual death... Spiritual death, our being, the entire being, spirit, soul, and body is separated from God. And we're all born into this life spiritually dead. Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. And he says, And you he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Now this explains that old conundrum. What did Jesus tell Adam and Eve before they partook of the forbidden fruit? 
Well, he said, don't eat it. But what uh, he said, in the day that you eat of it, you will die. Now, did they die? They didn't die physically. They died spiritually. They died in their trespasses and sins. Again, Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, they believe the death is annihilation. So they can't explain that. So you know what they do? They, they go into that uh, verse in Second Peter where it says a thousand years is as one day to the Lord and uh, one day is as a thousand years. They say, okay, right there. You know, uh, one day is a thousand years. So they, he, they died the day that they ate that because Adam didn't live to be a thousand years old. Pretty clever, right? Is that true? The, the, I, you know, I've been in the cult ministry, and this is typical, especially of Jehovah's Witnesses. They will take these scriptures, and they will go from one end of the Bible, you know, Genesis chapter uh, 3, all the way to Second Peter uh, chapter 3, and take, you know, uh, you to this other scripture that has nothing to do with the first scripture. But it's explained. The very day that Adam and Eve partook of the forbidden fruit, it wasn't just the day, it was the very hour, the very minute, the very second that they partook of the forbidden fruit, they died in their trespasses and sins. Very easy. You know, you understand the principles behind the Bible. You don't have to do all this hopscotching around in the Bible to prove your point. They died spiritually. Their spirit and their soul was separated from God. Now, spiritual life. This is now obtained when? When a person is born again spiritually. Remember, we're all born into this life spiritually dead. But Jesus said, in John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, that unless a man is born again, you know, that the, the way it's translated there doesn't do it justice. The Greek reads, born from above. Significant there. Unless a man is born from above, the heavenly birth, the spiritual rebirth, if you will, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And this happens when he trusts in the sin sacrifice on the cross for his uh, sins. John chapter 3, verse 14. This is in the uh, uh, born again passage where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a very learned man. And Jesus began to speak to him of these spiritual things. And then he clarified it in verse 14. He said, As Moses lift up the bronze snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever looks to him and believes in him should be born again, should uh, not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, what was he talking about? Well, if you know the story back in the uh, book of Numbers, it seems that when the uh, children of Israel were in the wilderness, 
They were grumbling towards God. Oh, God, you know, uh, we don't like living out here. We don't like your manna, you know, you know you're providing for us. You know, we don't like all this stuff. And uh, uh, what happened? God got angry. God gets angry, you know, when you grumble at him, you know. And so God got angry, and God sent a plague, plague of these fiery serpents. And the serpents bit many of the people. And you know what happened to them? They, they died. And so they, as typical, you know, they're going, undergoing trials. They look to the spiritual leader. Moses, do something about these fiery serpents. Have God take them away from us. And so God told Moses, what you need to do is you need to make a serpent made out of bronze or brass. And put it up on a pole, set it in the middle of the camp, and then if the people get bitten, then they're to go over to that brass servant, show their faith that they believe in the, the provision that I've given for them, that the brass serpent, and they will be healed. They will not die. Okay, so that was the story, and, and you know, we're studying in the Wednesday about types. That brass serpent was a type of the uh, sin sacrifice. This is what Jesus is saying there in being born again. It's a type of the sin sacrifice of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. And now when you look to that cross and what Jesus accomplished on there, you will obtain eternal life. Jesus also said in John eleven twenty five and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he may die spiritually, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Amen. Amen. Okay. You believe in him? You believe in his sin sacrifice, you will never die. You, you, you may die physically, probably all of us will, unless the Lord, uh, 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 you know, unless the Lord comes back. But if he tarries, all of us are going to face physical death. And so eternal life, brothers and sisters, does not begin the moment you die. Eternal life begins when you're born again. Right now I am living eternal life. Because my spirit is now in union with the Lord God. He has purged my sin through Jesus' blood. And I have eternal life now in the here and now. If you're born again today... You have eternal life. It's not some nebulous thing that will happen in the future. It's happening right now if you know Jesus. Okay, now I'm going to conclude with this thought. The beginning of the book of Genesis, which we read on uh, Wednesday night, we read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 1 of uh, Genesis 1. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. 
Now, there's what they call the gap theory in order to try to explain why the earth appears to be so much older than what it, uh, uh, you know, the 6,000 years that uh, Bishop Usher uh, calculated. Okay, they said something happened there in uh, Genesis 1 2. And what, uh, what it was, you know, the earth was without form and void. What's that saying? That's saying that there was chaos on the face of the earth. Chaos? Does God create chaos? God, whatever God creates, you know, He creates good. You know, and you go through the uh, seven uh, days of creation, or the first six anyway, and at the, it would say, and the evening and the morning was the first day. And God saw that it was good. Everything God creates is good. Then he comes to the sixth day where he creates man, and it says God saw that it was very good. So God doesn't create chaos. So that, that's what the theory is. They, they don't know what happened you know, to create this chaos. Because God would have created it perfect uh, before. Some scholars think that what happened was you had the war in the heavenlies. Between the forces of God, God and his uh, angels that continue to follow him. And the forces of darkness that rebelled against. And that's what caused the earth to come into chaos. I don't know. Because I wasn't, I wasn't there back then. <laughs> and neither, none of us either. Okay, second part there at verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You know, the way that the Hebrew reads, reads I understand, the Spirit of God was brooding. Almost like God was saying, you know, uh, well, what do I do next? And then uh, verse 3, and God said, what? Let there be light. And there was light. Now, Andrew Jukes, in the uh, book that we were reading, at least we started to read uh, on Wednesday night, he states that this is a type of the natural man. His life is without form and void. In other words, without God, his life is chaos. And that's a description of our lives without Christ. Total chaos separated from God. But God doesn't leave us alone. His Spirit still loves us. And He doesn't leave us alone in this spiritual chaos either. He didn't leave His uh, initial creation alone. He brought forth the first light and then the light later and then life later on. So it is with us. You know, he brings forth the light of his world and then life as we are born again. Jesus said, I have come that they might have life. And not just life, just kind of, you know, dull, mundane. Life more abundantly. If you're born again, God wants to give you that abundant life. And you don't get that abundant life if, if you just neglect Him and neglect His Word. Neglect 
that personal relationship with him. Jesus brings that abundant life to us. And he will bring it to you if you are born again. Now I want to conclude with this uh, closing song. And the closing song is uh, Just As I Am. How many of you have heard Just As I Am? Who's heard it? Okay, most of you should have heard it at one time. You know, that was written by a woman by the name of Charlotte Elliott. And I heard this, you know, just yesterday, you know, this illustration. It's, it's uncanny to me the way that God speaks to me through the things that I do that I can bring forth to you. Okay, Donnie Swaggart has this, you know, uh, uh, TV program on uh, the Sunlight uh, Broadcasting Network. It's called uh, The uh, Story Behind the Song. And he talked about the life of Charlotte Elliott and what brought about the writing of that song, Just As I Am. She was born in 1789 and she lived until 1871. And in her you know, teenage and uh, early adult life, she just lived a very carefree existence, didn't have much room for God. And then something happened to her in her early 20s. And that was she contracted some kind of malady. And they never did find out what it was, but it, you know, it might have been what we call today chronic pain syndrome. And he, she lived her life as an invalid constantly in constant pain. Much of the time she was bedridden. Much of the rest of the time she could only kind of putter around the house. She didn't get out very much at all. And, you know, she was largely bedridden. You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, Paul talked about his thorn in the flesh. That was her thorn in the flesh. And... Her uh, brother was a uh, church leader, you know, local church leader. And one day he had a a visit from this evangelist. Evangelist found out about uh, Charlotte. He went into her bedroom and sat down by her bed and uh, uh, said, well, tell me about yourself. And then, uh, you know, she shared with him, you know, about all this pain. And she, he asked her, have you been born again? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? You know, no, I don't. Would you like to receive him? And she said, yes, I would. And so he prayed with her, the sinner's prayer. And Jesus came into her life. She must have been maybe about 30 by this time, having suffered for several years. Jesus came into her life. And uh, so much in such a miraculous way that she didn't celebrate her physical birth anymore. Her birthday was the day that she was born again in her mind. And she must have prayed for healing. I'm sure she prayed for healing many times, you know, but she didn't get it. Just like uh, Paul didn't get uh, uh, healing from his thorn in the flesh. But she was not bitter towards it. But still she must have struggled and struggled. What's going on? Why isn't God healing me? And, you know, one day she sat down. and She was a prolific uh, uh, songwriter. You know, this is the only really uh, song that we really know about. 
And she sat down and she wrote that song, Just As I Am. And it was, you know, kind of just an expression to God, you know. And uh, in effect, she said, just as I am. In other words, here I am, Lord, take my life and use it. Take my life as it is. And God used her in a truly miraculous way. The Spirit uh, began dealing with her and told her to give that song to her brother, who again was a church leader. And he took it and he had it published. You know, uh, one of the prolific uh, publishers at that time was uh, producing a new hymnal and they heard the song, they just loved it, and the rest was history. We would say today, it went viral. It went all throughout England. She, she, she was in England. You know, she lived in England. And it went all, through, all throughout England and then continued to spread worldwide. I don't know how many uh, languages that hymn has been translated to. But <clears throat> it was destined to become the number one invitational hymn. In the world today. Sometime later, you know, she eventually died. She died in uh, 1871. She was 82 years old. So for 60, if she contracted that malady when she was in her early 20s, she suffered with that thing for uh, 60 years. And they went into her room to clean things out after she had passed. And they found a box that was full of letters, over a thousand of them. And they were written to her by people she had never known, never would know, you know, this side of eternity. And they talked to her and said how much her hymn had blessed him. Many of them said, I got saved at an invitation when your hymn was being played. Billy Graham seized upon it too. When he got saved back in the 1930s, he got saved, he came forward when that hymn was being played, just as I am. And he preached to literally millions of people in person and probably multiplied millions more over the airwaves, over the years. And he always ended up every service with that invitation, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And so let's just listen to that song. And if any of you are touched, you know, you want to come forward to prayer, uh, I'll walk on down here and uh, be willing to uh, chat with you about what you hear. Go on ahead and uh, cue that up.